Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. This week I fell down a bit of a rabbit hole um, thinking about and learning about um, all of Tom Brady's health regimen. Uh, Tom Brady is famous for having a strict diet. I didn't know exactly how strict it was, but let's just say that it makes people who eat according to the Whole30 diet look like they're eating out of athlete, possibly the greatest quarterback of all time, arguably so, does not lift weights, refuses as an NFL athlete to lift weights. But it goes further. He goes to bed at exactly 9 p.m. every night, no matter what. Nine o'clock is Tom Brady's bedtime. And then he wakes up at six in the morning. And he wakes up by means an alarm clock. That's how, that's how diligent he is because his phones stay in another room. There are no screens in his bedroom, period, ever. That's the rules. Not only that, his room where he sleeps is cooled to exactly 65 degrees. Not 64 and not 66. The room is at 65 degrees. And this was, the, this was the thing that got me. This was the thing that set me over the edge. Not only does he sleep in an exactly 65 degree room, but he does so wearing special pajamas that he has developed with Under Armour that are made of, and I'm promise you I'm not making this word up, bioceramics. Tom Brady sleeps in special Under Armour bioceramic pajamas that supposedly, allegedly reflect the infrared energy that your body gives off back into you. Okay, look. You can also buy these bioceramic pajamas for the low, low price of $200. So you, just like Tom Brady, can keep all of your infrared energy in and not lose it in your 65-degree room. Why do I mention all of this? Why do I go into this great detail? Because while some of us know it, I think that some of us need to know even more. Tom Brady is one self-disciplined dude. If there is anybody who understood how to exercise self-control, it's Tommy, baby. That guy gets it. Now, to my knowledge, Tom Brady does not profess to be a Christian, but he has self-control. This should create a question in our mind. Because our culture, our natural driven nature, lends itself towards self-control. Whether we're Tom Brady or not quite that, but think about the ways that we as a society love fitness and appearance. And so what does that drive us to do? What self-discipline does that create? Many of us are religious about our gym attendance. Words chosen carefully. Some of us are absolutely dedicated to advancing our careers, to, to moving on in our Uh, chosen occupation. And so our office becomes our temple. Words chosen carefully. Some of us are absolutely disciplined in the way that we want to see our children succeed. And so we place them on a pedestal. 
trying to make sure that they have exactly all of the right opportunities that they have to be their best. In each of these areas, and in so many more, we demand and achieve self-control. And the elevation of these and other good things, because after all, it's not a bad thing to be healthy. It's not wrong to have a good career. It's not a problem to want your kids to do well. But we elevate these things to such an important place And what's interesting is we do this, those of us who are Christians do this, and so do our neighbors. Our self-discipline in these areas is no different than our neighbor's self-discipline and self-control in the same ways. So do our more disciplined, non-Christian gym mates have more of the spirit than us? If self-control is something that we can muster and self-control is a fruit of the spirit, does it mean that that guy that goes six days a week when I only go five days a week, does that mean that that guy's got more of the Holy Spirit than I do? Does the family that is more militant about the screen time that their children have than me, and it's unfortunately not hard to get on that side of things, does that mean that they are better Christians than me, even though they're not Christians at all? Should we hold up Tom Brady as an example of the Christian virtue of self-control? Or is there something else? I think you know, most of you know, the way that I always set these questions up. You know that, of course, I am going to tell you that there is something else. Because we exercise self-control in our lives. All of us, in one form or another, in one area or another, exercise self-control in our lives, some more than others. But we do it out of our own love and desire for self-improvement. We exercise self-control out of the love and desire we have for our own self-improvement. But true self-control the kind of self-control that Paul is talking about, the kind of self-control that is a fruit of the Spirit, that sort of self-control is born out of our love for Jesus and desire to see his kingdom come. Anything short of that, any sort of self-control that is short of the goal of the love of Jesus and the desire to see his kingdom come is self-worship. And I want to show you that from the Bible. I want to show you that from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul is going to use the example of athletes to teach us about self-control. So if you would, please stand with me as I read God's word. I'm going to read verses 24 through 27. If you've got a Bible, you're welcome to go there, or the words will be on the screen behind me. City Church, let's hear God's word. Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
City Church, this is the Word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Paul lays out for us three analogies, three sort of examples in this text. He tells us about a runner, he tells us about an athlete, and he tells us about a boxer. All of these things were associated with the Olympics. And the people of Corinth would have understood this well. Corinth, while not a city that we talk about a lot, was a major city in the ancient Roman world. It was one of the leading commerce centers in the entire country of Greece. And so since it was a big city, the city of Corinth would have been an Olympic powerhouse sheerly because of its size surely because of the number of people that lived there. And so these people that Paul is writing to in Corinth understood this. They would have been able to go and see the games that prepared people for the Olympics. They would have been able to see the Peloponnesian games that happened there around Corinth. And so Paul is talking about something that they know. Just like if I sometimes were to say, open a sermon with a story about local football hero Tom Brady, we all, even if we're not sports fans, sort of understand that Paul's doing the same thing. So I'm fine in doing it. Paul mentions first runners. Runners who run to win the race. Marathon was invented in ancient Greece, and while it wasn't official, an official part of the Olympiad, it was oftentimes scheduled nearby. And, and the marathon um, was something that Paul pointed out, there can be only one winner. All of the men and women race, but only one of them gets to win. That's, you can only have one winner. All of them run, only one of them wins. And then Paul talks about athletes. And, and the Olympiad that the Greeks would have known, the ancient Olympiad, was something more like what we would call a decathlon. All of the athletes participated in all of the events. So they all did the running. They all did the jumping. They all threw the discus. They all did something kind of like what we would call a shot put. All of them did it all together. But unlike our modern games, you didn't get a medal for winning the Olympics. You got a wreath. This wreath was made by the, uh, send a young man from the town to go trim the olive tree. And then they would take it to the temple of Hera, Zeus's wife, and they would form that into a wreath. And whoever won all of the events of the Olympics got that wreath. But it was a wreath made of tree limbs. It was a wreath made of tree limbs that were already cut down. It was dead by the time they put it on your head. Not even as enduring as the medals that athletes get today. And then Paul introduces us to boxing. The way that the Olympics ended, after you've run, after you've jumped, after you've thrown the discus, after you've wrestled, they said, all right, now to declare the final winner, we're just going to bare knuckle box. Get out there and get after it, you guys. And so they did. That was the final sort of crowning event. And let's be honest, right? If you're trying to determine the fittest man, after you've done all this, who's got the most stamina in a bare knuckle boxing match seems like a pretty fair way to figure out who is the Olympic winner. And so that's what they did. That's a very efficient way to determine the winner. So Paul tells us there's runners, there's athletes, there's boxers, and all of these analogies have one thing in common. All of these things 
require absolutely strict self-discipline in order to achieve. This is the ancient world. There's no sort of sports science department at the University of Corinth. There is no cameras to give you a slow motion analysis of your discus throwing so you can get just three or four more feet on each throw. There's no spider tack to make sure your discus has the right amount of spin as it goes out into the world. No, 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 it's none of that. You just had to rely on willpower and repetitive training. That was it. Self-control and self-discipline. And Paul holds these up to us. Paul gives us these three examples as something that is lacking, as something that's not quite there yet. And he's doing this because he's trying to show us that true Christian self-control is more than just the ability to exert our will over this thing or that. Christian self-control is more than that. The rigorous self-discipline that we can exercise in our lives can actually be a hindrance to our spiritual life. Rigorous self-discipline can actually be a hindrance to the work of the Spirit. Why? I mean, Justin, you're preaching a sermon on self-control, and it sounds like you're saying self-control is bad. In a way, I am. Here's how. If self-control is born of my own willpower... If I can do it on my own, then I don't need the Holy Spirit and it's not a fruit of the Spirit. Work of the Holy Spirit. It is not the work of the Holy Spirit and therefore not the fruit of the Spirit. This is shown by this way that some of the most religiously disciplined people in the world can be farthest from the heart of Christ. Some of the most disciplined people can be far off. Jesus gives this, this is something we see again and again in the pages of the Gospels. The Pharisees would have won the self-discipline award over and over again. And yet, what does Jesus do? He calls them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside because you do all the right things. And Jesus says, but your insides are full of dead men's bones. If your morality is built on your ability to manage your sin, you lack meaningful dependence on Jesus. If your morality is built on your ability to manage your sin, you lack any sort of meaningful dependence on Jesus. If I can eliminate sin from my heart and my mind simply from gritting my teeth, I'm telling you that I don't need Jesus. Self-control. This is from a, a pastor uh, named Sanderson who wrote a commentary on one sin for another. Think about that. I'm going to say it again because it self-control, which masters one sin, but does so without relying on the Holy Spirit, just swaps one sin for another. We need something else. We need something else because self-control apart from the Holy Spirit is nothing more than self-worship. Anytime that we exercise self-control for any end other than the love of Jesus and the desire to see his kingdom grow, we're engaging in worship, just not worship of God, worship of ourselves. 
Christian self-discipline is different. It is different than the sort of self-discipline and self-control that these athletes exhibited, which is why Paul takes each one of these examples and he goes further with it. Each one of these analogies, and he goes a little bit more. First, the runner. All of these runners train, but only one wins. So then Paul says to us, he turns to us and says, so run to win the race. Or to borrow from another famous sports moment, you play to win the game. You don't play to just play. Hello? You play to win the game. The goal of why we discipline ourselves, the goal of why the runner runs to finish first, our goal, our goal is Holy Spirit-driven self-control. And what that looks like is faithfulness to the gospel. That's our goal. Not faithfulness that's born of our human will, but from God. What the Holy Spirit grows in us and points us in the direction of, what he's trying to grow in us when he says you run to win the race is the very things that we have been looking at for the past eight weeks. The thing that self-discipline that comes from the Holy Spirit looks like is, I don't know, something like, say, love or joy, perhaps peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That is the goal. Our self-discipline is not a means to self-improvement, but rather a means to see the Holy Spirit grow his fruit in our lives. And then he shows the difference between us and the athlete. The athlete trains and prepares and maybe even wears his bioceramic jammies to receive a crown which withers and dies. It goes away. Even if you hang it in your house within a few months or at least a year, all you're left with is a circle of sticks. It reminds me so much of the Stanley Cup. Stanley Cup might be the greatest trophy in all of sports. It's certainly one of the biggest. But what's so unique about the Stanley Cup is that you only get to keep it for a year. And then it goes away. When you win the Super Bowl, you get a Super Bowl trophy and you put it in your team facility and it stays there. If you win a World Series, you get a World Series trophy and it stays there. You win the Stanley Cup, enjoy it while it lasts. You probably have to give it to somebody else in 12 months. And then they get to have it for a year. And then they give it to somebody else. Maybe not this year. There's a chance. Just saying. The wreath that the Olympiads got was fleeting. It was passing away. Our goal is greater than that. As we allow the Holy Spirit to develop self-control in our lives, it has eternal consequences. It's not something that perishes. It's not something that goes away. When the Holy Spirit begins to grow the fruit of the Spirit in our life, the kingdom of God begins to break into this world. We get little previews of the goodness and grace that is to come. We see people turned from darkness to light. We see truly astonishing acts of selflessness and gentleness 
that changes our hearts. Way better than a crown that perishes. Way better than a giant cup. We get to be God's instruments in forming and weaving the story that echoes into eternity. Not by our grit, but by our reliance on the Holy Spirit. And lastly, he gives us the reason for the boxer. We aren't just shadow boxing our sparring. We discipline our body and our souls so that we might be found faithful. It's interesting that Paul brings up the body because right before he lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, he gives us another list. It's not as fun. It's not as happy and as nice, but it's there. And it mirrors the fruit of the Spirit in a sort of dark and reverse way. He gives us the list of the deeds of the flesh. Here's what he says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is the list of the deeds of the flesh that Paul gives us. And Paul warns us that a lack of Holy Spirit-based self-control can disqualify us. He's again, he's, he's really kind of hammering on this, this athletic competition thing. Because to be disqualified is to be ruled out of bounds of the competition. If you were, had made it all the way and you were one of the boxers, you would be ruled disqualified if, say, for instance, you bit your opponent's ear. Our lack of self-control invalidates our words to those around us. On the one hand, we can have self-control that is self-worship that pushes us away from the heart of Jesus. But on the other hand, if we don't walk with the Holy Spirit, seeing his fruit grow in our lives, who would listen to us? What do I have to offer? If we talk a lot about Jesus, but live a lot just like our neighbors, what are we doing? What am I doing here? If you're here and you aren't a Christian, I want to confess to you that we as a church and Christianity as a whole, both of these things have been true about us. We have been both stunningly self-righteous and shockingly self-indulgent. We have fallen off of this in both directions. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian, I think you can probably sense that in yourself too. I know I can in my life. There are times where I'm self-disciplined for my own self-interest. And there are times where I am ignoring what God is doing in my life. So what do we do? Here we are, most of us struggling with self-control in one way or the other. What we need to do is look towards Jesus. Jesus understands this. Think about the beginning and end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism, and then immediately afterwards, he goes out into the desert for 40 days to fast and prepare himself for ministry. And then Satan comes to him. And what is the first thing that Satan tempts Jesus with? After 40 days of fasting, Satan says, I know you can turn those rocks into bread. I know that you can use your powers as God to fulfill your bodily desires. So do it. Go ahead, do it. Make bread out of stone. Do it. Come on. 
You're hungry. It tastes good. You'd only make the best bread. Do it. Jesus exercises self-control. Not just for his own sake. In fact, the opposite. He exercises self-control so that he might give us his righteousness. He resists the temptation, speaking God's word back. The night that he is going to be betrayed. And, and as he is there, he's not concerned about bread this time, but a cup. Jesus, in that moment, was knowing what was about to happen. And what does he pray? He prays, if it is possible to let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows what his faithfulness is about to cost him. Uh, Tear the world open and rip down the Roman citadel. No, he's faithful and self-controlled. He lets himself not only face a series of sham trials, but ultimately be nailed to a tree that he created by humans who he breathed life into. Jesus was self-controlled so that we could be free from the tyranny of self-improvement and self-hatred. Jesus took not only the punishment for our lack of self-control, in God's eyes, he has given us his righteousness for all of the self-control he exhibited, both in these two instances and every other. Writing over him of darkness. Church, look how good Jesus is to us. Look at the greatness of his forgiveness. Look at the love that he has shown to us as we reflect and meditate on what Jesus has done on our behalf. We should be so captured and captivated that we cannot help but be changed. And one of the ways that understanding the gospel changes us is in the area of self-control. Not to better ourselves, but to see his name lifted up better ourselves, but to see his name lifted up. This is why we read our Bibles, not out of duty, but as will. This is why we give, not to fulfill some sort of checklist, but to reflect the generosity that he has shown to us. Church, we are called to a rigorous and disciplined life. But that rigorous and disciplined life is to be driven by the beauty of what Jesus has done for us and not by duty. So let us joyfully pray that the Holy Spirit would grow this kind of self-control in our lives. And let's do that now.